Hey there, fellow mojo. How you doing? Are you even feeling your mojo right now? It's hard sometimes, especially when our worlds are so upside down. I know I've been struggling, and my anxiety about the coming weeks, months, is pretty fucking high. So, I thought I'd provide a little escapism on this episode with story number two. I'm going to tell you about a significant day in my life, a day that reminds me that I have more strength inside of me than I give myself credit for sometimes. I think we all do. And right now, we all need to be strong. I'm not going to pretend that I know how excruciatingly hard it is for some of you right now, the losses that you may have faced, that you may be facing now, the worries you have. I have some pretty serious concerns about my future, but I know they may be nothing in comparison to the worries of others. I'm grateful. But none of us can dismiss our anxiety because we're not in as dire of straits as others may be. We all have a right to be stressed right now, and frankly, our fears are justified. The uncertainty about our own situations, much less our countries, is somewhat terrifying. For those of us with any sort of control issues... We have to embrace our newfound lack of control over just about anything. And it's hard. Sometimes you have to just compartmentalize and prioritize and be proactive in creating the change you desire. It'll make you feel better. Take back a little control. Right now, the business at hand is obviously the election. So get your part done. Make your plan to vote sooner rather than later and do it. That act of casting your ballot alone will make you feel infinitely better and will provide you with at least a moment of feeling in control. My story for you in this episode is about another time I took back control. And while it was a rough day while I was going through it, ultimately, it was empowering. You never know what life or love will bring. Try not to let it break you. Remember your strength your mojo. You've got it. You really do. Don't be afraid to flex it. What I'm about to tell you occurred a little over five years ago. It involves the end of my marriage. But it's not a sad story because it's also about the beginning of Mojo Girl, even though I may not have realized it at the time. It's funny. So many days behind us are a blur And you'd think five years passing would weaken my recall. I always laugh on cop shows when they interview someone and say, what were you doing on August 17th last year? What the fuck? Who has that level of memory? Don't say Mary Lou Henner. You don't. I don't. Unless something impactful happened. Then you remember every detail of every moment, every sound and smell as if it were yesterday. This story is about a day like that in my life, an impactful day. So sit back, try to forget about the current events for a while, and come on this journey with me. The date is June 4th, 2015. I hadn't slept well the night before, and it took me a while to get out of bed. He denied it every time. He didn't think I could smell his cigarette when he was upstairs. 
but the smoke came through the vent above my head as I lay there, dreading the slow climb to join him as he stank up the condo. This time, he'd had dental surgery the day before, and he wasn't supposed to be smoking. But rules were for other people. Oh, I bet he was also chewing that damn Nicorette gummy out of case of in his closet. It goes well with Marlboro Lights. He'd been in Vancouver producing a movie for over a month. But my vacation was now over. I'd seen a lawyer while he was away. Just one meeting to see where I might stand on certain issues, like the financial ones. You see, I'd quit my career as a TV director to run a nonprofit when we got married. You can do whatever you want, he'd told me. I'll take care of you. <laughs> yeah, right. Good one. But he was so different back then. I do think that he meant well. He was just delusional as to his own capabilities, as was I, sadly. It had been a long time coming, but I really felt that I had done all I could to save the marriage, and none of it had worked. We even had gone to therapy together until he decided to stop because he didn't want to be called out on his shit. How dare he be told that as a married man, he shouldn't be texting with the young stand-in from his movie in the middle of the night, or bringing her to a dinner that I wasn't at with anyone, much less people who were also colleagues of mine. How dare anyone tell him he should do anything, even if it would save the marriage. So he said goodbye to therapy. I stayed. I was finally ready to begin the transition out. He wouldn't want a divorce. Hell, he wouldn't want to lose his trophy and caregiver. So I would ease him out. We would calmly discuss how a separation would be a good thing. I actually wouldn't even mention the D word yet. I would be positive about it all, saying, we're better as friends, right? So I brushed my teeth, brushed my hair, and stepped up quietly in my slippers to face that we-need-to-talk moment. En route, I noticed the now darkened specks of gum that he would spray out of his mouth when he chewed. Hardened black specks all over the place, on the floor, on the furniture. It was fresh and clear spittle when produced, but its stickiness attracted the dust, which made it black. Then it dried in place. Sometimes, when he was done chewing a piece, after about two minutes, and before immediately popping in a new piece of gum, he would take the entire wad from his mouth and put it in his pocket, unwrapped, a lovely little gift for Katie when she did the laundry. I really could not wait to scrape that gum out of my life, finally. Then I saw the coffee, everywhere. The upstairs of the beautifully remodeled condo had puddles of coffee every two feet, all across the new wood floor. The dentist had said he wasn't allowed to drive for at least 24 hours, as the anesthesia would still be in his system. He apparently couldn't walk, either. I wasn't even sure he'd realize that he'd been so unsteady that his swaying arm had apparently sloshed the liquid to his right and left, marking his tracks as he shuffled along. Part of me thought that he had done this on purpose, though, for pity, as he may have sensed something was up with me. He was right. I looked to the right, at the top of the stairs. My eyes followed the trail of coffee between the crate and barrel dining room table with the brown leather chairs on the left and the same store's gray suede sectional on the right, to the open balcony door. There I saw him, sitting at the wrought-iron bistro set, hunched over his computer like a gargoyle, 
mug in hand, cigarette hanging onto the edge of his lips. He'd thrown on that same black t-shirt and sweatpants he'd worn the day before, and I knew they were now stained down the front, as usual, with whatever had flown or dribbled out of his mouth. He hadn't seen me yet, which for him was good. As I crossed to head into the kitchen for the paper towels, he came inside, stumbling over the threshold. He was fucked up. He hadn't been nearly that unsteady the night before, so he must have supplemented the anesthesia with a handful of Vicodin. He loved his pills, among other things. Good morning, he said, all smiles as though the the great lakes weren't right in front of him. Returning his smile, I asked, What the fuck happened with the coffee? Oh, sorry, I didn't see it. There were a good dozen puddles between us. How are you feeling? I said, holding in most of my anger. Good, much better. Nice. I cleaned up, and he went downstairs. The talk would have to wait until he had a sober moment, so I made my Nespresso and settled into the big chair by the window with the L.A. Times. But my heart was racing and my head was spinning. I couldn't focus on the paper. I just stared out the window at the valley below. Better days ahead, I told myself. Better days ahead. I had just opened the calendar section to see if there might be a movie I could escape to later in the day when I heard the banging. He was dragging up my favorite orange suitcase, its wheels clanking against every stair. And when he reached the summit, he grabbed the keys off the entry table, steadied himself against the wall, and said, I'm going to the office, then down to the desert, referring to our house in Palm Springs. He hadn't changed his clothes. I sat up, No, you can't drive yet, the doctor said. He then uttered the last words he would ever say inside my condo. I'm fine. And he was gone. As fast as I was moving, by the time I got my keys, waited for the elevator, and got down to the garage, I would see only the red reflection on the cement floor of the taillights of his brand new convertible Mercedes, which was in my name because I had better credit and was under my insurance because, well, because. The car was heading up the slope and the gate closed behind it while I stood there watching it go. I raced back upstairs, still in my slippers. He's on his way to you, I said to his assistant. He shouldn't be driving for a few hours, so please find as much as you can for him to do. Anything, papers to sign, whatever, and let me know as soon as he arrives. And try to get his keys. She understood. His production company office was less than a mile away, so she and I both hoped he would arrive intact. His assistant had known about the Vicodin and other substances for a while, and I believe she also knew about the women. She probably knew more than I did. So, I waited, not knowing exactly what my new plan would be. I just wanted this current drama to play out peacefully. I needed time to think. Him going to the desert that day meant he knew things were about to change between us. He was avoiding the talk by leaving. He had scheduled his dental surgery for the day he got back from Canada, too. Get the surgery, get the Vicodin, go to the desert. His plan ruined my plan, and I knew that he knew it. The phone interrupted my jumbled thoughts. He should have been here by now, she said. I'm going down the block to see if I can find his car. I went into hyperdrive as I combed my hair into a ponytail on top of my head, covered up the circles under my eyes, and pulled on shorts and a tank top. It was a really hot day in L.A., 
I, of course, had run out the night before to get a spray tan at Bronzed Bunny. I had no time now to shower off properly and make myself presentable, but at least the tanning spray would have time to really sink in. I just wish it didn't smell so funky, and that I didn't have those little streaks along the sides of my hands and heels. Those streaks could really be dark by the end of the day. I probably should have gone a shade or two lighter, but, but I hadn't realized then how long it would be before I'd be able to take a shower. I still didn't as I grabbed my keys and started to drive down Ventura Boulevard to search for the Mercedes. As soon as my car hit the asphalt of the street, though, and the signal came back, my cell phone on the console lit up with a text from his assistant. Katie, come to the corner of Ventura and Whitsitt. I immediately got another text from him. 11.06 a.m. You are hearing my interpretation of what he wrote. Quote, N, just the letter N, N, in trouble. I messed up. Wasn't ready to drink crew, card, waters, war, Mercedes. In trouble. You're best rid of me after all. Just wanted to get to P.S. I'm a fool. Thank goodness about ending it all. Ever turning to to L.A. Five you everything. I'm a dog dope. Hate myself. Okay, well, he was alive. I texted back, I can't understand your text. Did you get in an accident? I tried to decipher the following five texts at the stoplight, a half a mile from where he had sent them. One, yes, in fucked, quoting biz. you'll be taken care of, I promise. Two, pound, hurt, attuned, tested, fix, gui. Three, DUI. Four. I probably just go home. You'll e angry. You'll be right. I'm ab insipid. You can leave me decor a me whatever. I'm thinking thinks. And the last text before I hit the gas pedal. Number five. Might end up in jail. I arrived at the corner of Whitsitt and Ventura Boulevard before the cops. He hadn't left the driver's seat of the Mercedes since it skidded to a stop, the axle snapping in half in the right turn lane. He had sideswiped three parked cars before he jerked the steering wheel so hard the car simply broke. It would go nowhere without a flatbed tow truck. His assistant was standing near the car, waiting for me in a hair salon's parking lot where I parked my Prius. The salon owner had already called the cops to report a drunk driver, but at least his assistant had taken care of the insurance exchange, and no one had been hurt, thankfully. He's in bad shape, she said. No kidding. I wasn't really concerned about him at the moment, though. My mind was already prepping for the police. Somehow, I always become the calm in every storm not of my own making. I take charge and get shit done. I naturally lead, especially in a crisis. This was one of those times. I walked to the passenger window and leaned in. Are you okay? I'm so sorry. I know I'm going to jail. Listen, I commanded. Under no circumstances do you get out of this car. When the cops arrive, muster every ounce of sobriety you have left and tell them you got distracted, that your car is busted, the insurance has been handled, and you're just waiting for Mercedes to show up with the tow. Moments later, 
one black and white, and two uniformed cops arrived. I bounced lightly over to greet them in my shorts and fake tan, ponytail purposefully swaying ever so slightly. Hey, gentlemen, sorry you got called out. I think we've sorted everything. My husband was just on the phone with Mercedes to send out a tow. His wheels are locked up, so he can't move it. He just had a little panic attack or something and turned the wheel the wrong way and grazed the cars over there. We've already provided the insurance info. All good. Panic attacks are a medical condition, the taller officer informed me. I'll go talk to him, said cop number two. If awards were handed out to those acting nonchalant in the face of heart-stopping panic, I would have at least been a nominee. I smiled up at cop number one, thankful I had taken the time to brush my teeth, and said, Oh, they're not real panic attacks. He just got distracted, probably talking on his Bluetooth, and got too close to the parked cars. Then he got flustered and cranked the wheels the other way too hard, and now they're locked up. I had repeated myself and hoped I hadn't said too much, knowing that too many words indicate a lie. Where was he going, he said, as he wrote in his little black, fake, leather-bound notepad. Oh, just to his office. And I pointed to his actual office building. We just live down the street, and that's his assistant over there, pointing to the young brunette who was looking at her phone next to my Prius. The other officer was walking back now, in slow motion. He's not drunk. No smell of alcohol, he said. I was hopeful. He's just embarrassed. Embarrassed was the least of what he was, but I wasn't about to correct the officer. I said thanks and goodbyes and waved as they drove away, dumbfounded by witnessing my first miracle. Then I went to work. I directed and produced the hell out of the rest of the day. It wasn't even noon yet. After the cops left the scene... His assistant and I loaded my favorite orange suitcase into the hatchback of the Prius, and we escorted our wobbly subject to the passenger seat. Thank God the officers hadn't asked him to get out of the Mercedes and walk a straight line. His assistant, whose mother had been a cop, actually, later told me that not all officers are trained to do field sobriety tests, so perhaps we just got lucky. Really, really lucky. I removed the rest of his personal belongings from the Mercedes and stood outside the broken car while he remained hidden. I could see the cigarette smoke from the passenger side window over the top of my car and wanted to run over it and extinguish it in his hand, but I refrained. I knew it would be the last time he ever sat in my car. The tow truck for his car arrived about ten minutes later. The following hours would be a series of events that would shape the remainder of my year. First order of business, check my soon-to-be ex-husband into his new digs and have the discussion. It's a common joke in Studio City and vicinity that the Sportsman's Lodge is a haven for recently divorced or separated men. Fortunately, it was also within walking distance to his office, so he would need to maneuver another vehicle. I had his keys and asked his assistant to snag his driver's license so he couldn't drive if he wanted to, and I knew he'd want to. He'd been determined to get to Palm Springs, to undoubtedly avoid having to talk about anything with me, and when he sobered up enough to think again, I knew he would rent a car and revisit his plan. I beat him to the proverbial punch, though, and as soon as we unloaded in his hotel room, where I asked his assistant to stay and be a witness... I told this feeble excuse for a husband 
that he should take this newfound alone time to think about where he would be living next, as coming back to the condo was no longer an option. His assistant and I later wondered whether he had actually understood what I was implying. I didn't actually care, though, frankly. He was out, and that was a big step one accomplishment, no matter how messy it was getting there. After waving goodbye to his assistant, as she walked back to her office, I went back to my Prius and just sat there in the quiet, digesting the last four momentous hours. I didn't cry. I think I was numb. A piece of me died that day. That was it. That was the end. The final day. The final hours of my marriage. All that was now left were the formalities of the dissolution. It may have been the first time in my life, sitting there in my little hybrid, that I felt both truly sad and truly happy at the same time. Neither emotion had really sunk in yet, though, nor would they for a while. There was simply too much to do. Lunch was served out of my glove box in the form of two 100-calorie packs of unsalted almonds. Mm, They were dry and chewy, but I didn't care. I spent from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. that sunny Thursday dealing with the broken Mercedes, but I managed to fit in a few important phone calls along the way. The first was to my insurance company, USAA, because lo and behold, they had not been informed of the accident, at least not by anyone I knew. I don't remember much of my conversation with the lovely insurance agent, but she must have been lovely because she had understood what I was saying, well enough to handle the fortunately minor claims against the Mercedes and to remove, per my request, the driver of that car from my policy. When and if he regained his license, he could get his own damn coverage. I had actually informed him an hour earlier that he wouldn't be driving the Mercedes again at all until its lease was legally transferred to his name. It was my car until further notice. Little did I know it would be six weeks before it came back from the shop. They had to ship in the axle that was broken in half from Germany because it was such a new car. And that new car was a total pain in the ass that afternoon. It wasn't until after 5 p.m. that I was finally free to go home, eat, shower off my now ripe-smelling fake tan, and process the day. I was actually kind of proud of myself for somehow finding the time during all the madness of that afternoon to call my lawyer and ask her to draw up and file divorce papers immediately. I was really doing it. Somehow... My carefully laid and quite considerate plan of easing my husband into a separation had gone right out the window. He had forced me to rip off the band-aid. Ironically, once home, I poured myself a drink. I could only laugh when his assistant called a little while later to inform me that he had come by the office to pick up some things and was now taking an Uber to the desert. An Uber. When there's a will, I worried about him that night. I really did. I hoped he wouldn't be found face down in the swimming pool the next day. But we both made it through until morning. And as Friday dawned, I called my lawyer and asked her to hold off having him serve the divorce papers until the following business day, which was three days later. 
I knew he'd be down at Palm Springs for a while, and I knew he was probably in no condition that day to receive the paperwork. You know, as miserable as I had been through much of the marriage, it wasn't all bad. And I did understand he was battling some pretty heavy-duty demons. I never wished him ill. I just needed to be done with him before I could no longer recognize myself. I had to start putting myself, my psyche, back together. His constant lies and gaslighting, typical of any addict, had taken a real toll. And to say that I felt less than a woman, less than human, would be accurate. It had to end. And yes, it's too bad it went down the way it did. That had not been my plan. But it had to end. Flash forward three months, and he had emerged from the desert. We'd had three hours of mediation, and by mid-August, we were signing the papers, which would be approved by the judge on December 29th of that same year, when apparently most judges clear their dockets of all the sad, formerly wed couples. Except I wasn't sad. June 4th had indeed been a traumatic day, and there was a lot of sadness. But that day had opened a door for me, to me, and I would soon embark upon what I'll always think of as the happiest year of my life. When I got my fucking mojo back. Don't forget to hit that subscribe, favorite, or follow button. You won't want to miss our special pre- and post-election episodes. I'm going for laughs, motivation, and inspiration. Join me. And remember to take some time for yourself during these stressful times. Conjure your mojo and be strong and know that you are not alone. We've got each other and we're all in this together. And together, we are powerful. Love you madly. Mojo Girl Madness is produced by Morgan McDougall Productions.